0: This is Anthony areno and you're listening to In the Arena. Stay- Tim Hurson is the author of a book called Think Better, An Innovator's Guide to Productive Thinking. This is the 10th anniversary of that book, and you can pick it up right now on Amazon.com. This interview starts off a little weird for me because Tim and I have been acquainted with each other for a long time, and we belong to a peer group where we communicate with each other, but we've never spoken face-to-face. So, it's a little weird because my book, The Lost Art of Closing, cites his book on the cover flap, Never Be Closing, which I believe is a bad idea. You always have to be gaining commitments, but Tim and I are completely aligned on the idea, never be closing, if closing means you don't get all the commitments necessary to be able to ask for that commitment when it's time to do that. So, with that said... I enjoyed this conversation very much, and I consider Tim a brother, and I like him, and you're going to love him. Tim Herson, In the Arena. Okay. (laughs) We're we're recording, and I'm going to tell the listeners right now, Tim, that you and I have been talking now for approximately 12 minutes, and we have not touched anything to do with your book, which we will.
1: Which is okay. (laughs)
0: Because this is really the first time you and I have talked outside of email. That's right. And we already have so much in common. We're going to talk a lot more, I'm sure.
1: Good stuff. Good stuff.
0: So, <laughs> your book, Never Be Closing, <laughs> is quoted on the cover of my book. And the person who named your book was?
1: Adrian Zackheim, who is the publisher of Portfolio Penguin.
0: And the person who named my book is, is Adrian. Yes. <laughs> and then they took your book and used it in the cover of my book because it was sort of the, the polarity that we were looking at was always be closing, never be closing, and how confusing it is for salespeople to know which of these things is true.
1: What should I do? <laughs>
0: right. right. Am I always closing? Am I never closing? How, how do I win deals? And I, I think that the, the heart of your book, though, is if closing is something that we're doing to somebody... Yeah. What were you going to name the book?
1: So we had a number of titles, but the one that I liked the best was The Sales Guide for the Accidental Salesperson. And the reason is that I have encountered so many people, as I know you have, Anthony, as well, who don't think of themselves as salespeople, but who are necessarily every single day of their business and non-business lives selling. Right. And they hate it because they don't know what it's about and they feel inauthentic and We thought that wouldn't it be cool if you could take some tools that we know work in other realms, and that's the innovation realm with with the other book that I hope that we'll talk about as well, that if you took some tools from that realm, you could actually use them within a sales context and be really successful. Why? Because you're gaining commitment, because you're gaining friends, because you're making relationships, and Because you're aiming not for the first sale, but for the second sale and all the sales beyond that. And that's where I think that the conventional, and we talked about this before we started recording, this conventional idea of closing is finish the deal. No, I don't ever want to finish the deal. I want to actually open more deals. It's what
0: I call having an absolute right to the next deal. You sell in such a way that you don't even have to sell anymore. I don't know if we'll get to your prior book because I just didn't know how interesting you are until today. And now I know we could talk for a long time and probably never get to books.
1: We could, (laughs) which would be okay too. I would like that.
0: The accidental salesperson covers everyone though. In reality, even people who sell, when they were young children, they didn't go to their parents and say, when I grow up, I'm going to be a salesperson and sell SaaS solutions. You know, they they, they never said that. You ended up in sales for some other reason. So everyone, even the best salespeople, that wasn't their childhood dream. I mean, so we, yeah. we all end up here accidentally. And I think it is a place where people can do really good work and really help people change and transform if they come into it from the right place and what you're really trying to do. And you and I would agree on this, that it's not something that you're trying to do to someone, it's something that you're trying to do for someone and with someone so that they can get an outcome that they're not getting without you. I mean, and that that's ultimately what we're trying to do.
1: And I think that's the basic misconception. I think it's why so many people, A, don't like sales, you know, those accidental salespeople, and why so many salespeople often have bad reputations, because... The perception is, and I don't think it's accurate, but I think it's there. The perception is that you're doing it to somebody, that the other person, the other part of the equation is just an object. And if you believe that, you're not going to be helping anybody. Yeah, you might close a deal, but you're not really going to be helping anybody.
0: No, and you're not a long-termer. That's, exactly. a, that's a short-term yeah. view. Let's talk about thinking better, an innovator's guide to productive thinking, as opposed to
1: what? Unproductive thinking? So a lot of the material in there is, is about creative problem solving. Yeah. And I had a situation uh, years ago and I used to go around the country and, you know, do seminars and speeches and so on. And you know how you're on an airplane and you start talking to somebody, what do you do? What do you do? And. As soon as somebody asked me what I did and I would say things like, uh, you know, I teach people how to think creatively, they would go back to their magazine and it wasn't even Time magazine. It was (laughs) like the airline magazine because it was somehow, you know, airy fairy and not particularly useful. So one day, completely by just by whim, I said I teach people how to think more productively instead of more creatively. And the response was astonishing. And it's kind of interesting because it relates back to the sales thing, too. Suddenly, I had made a connection with people, because what was important to them, you know, business, business class is to be productive and start making that link and say, yeah, there's a way of thinking that actually allows you to learn better, to plan better, to solve problems better, to do better and ultimately to be better. That would be a useful thing. So that's where the term productive thinking came from. And then it turned out that years ago, a psychologist named Wertheimer had coined the term productive thinking and had almost exactly the same definition that I ultimately, ultimately used, which was a combination of thinking broadly and thinking in a focused way. But I didn't know that at the time.
0: So it's sort of a lateral thinking?
1: In, in a way. I think really, if I, if I, if I think about it, you know, where I am on this material now, it's, it's really pretty straightforward. How, how
0: many years uh, later is this now? From the original publication date?
1: It's exactly 10 years.
0: Okay, exactly 10 exactly. years. So, uh, hopefully you've grown in that time, Tim.
1: I That's, <laughs> indeed, in, in fact, you know, I, I rewrote the introduction, and I hopefully, you know, I, ca- I captured it. I think that what happens is that most of us, not consciously, we think that we think as well as we can. Like, <laughs> of course you do, right? And... But would we say that about anything else? Would we say we play the best golf play game we ever could? No. Would we say we sell as well as we ever can? You've got two books that demonstrate. No, of course we can learn more. Right. And so there there are these tools and some of them are heuristics and some of them are just rules of thumb. And some of them are just ways of shaping your thought, ways of structuring your thought that are like – you know, like, it's like a screwdriver. You couldn't put a screw in a piece of wood without a screwdriver. It extends your, your human capability. Well, in the same way, there are all kinds of tools that we can use. And they're mostly pretty simple that allow us to think better to, you know, to drive that, that screw and to drive that nail in instead of trying to beat your hand up by doing it just by hand. So that's what the essence of that book is.
0: I want to go to, before we get into any of the things that people can do, I want to talk about the second chapter of the book for just a minute and the things that prevent us from thinking productively, monkey mind, yeah. gator braid, and the elephant's tether. So walk people through just a little bit of what that is. I, I really think that monkey mind right now, I don't know if that's even strong enough. It's almost like silverback gorilla mind. You're talking about distraction now. At of, I mean, at a level no one could have imagined. Give me your thoughts yeah. on that.
1: So you and I started the conversation before we started the, the recording by saying both of us had experience in doing uh, meditation and working with the mind. And we know, and anyone who's ever tried this knows that you can do it for two and a half seconds, right? And then, and then all these other things take over, you know, and monkey mind literally is the image for me is, you know, the monkey swinging through the trees of your brain, and it's impossible ultimately to focus, to concentrate, to land on something until the very first thing you do is recognize though, those monkeys are there, and we all have it. We all have it. The, the amazing thing, though, about monkey mind is, on, on on the one hand, it's a distraction, exactly as you say, because there are so many of these, yes, yeah, silverback gorillas, but, but like a herd of them, right? Right, They're right. All, they're all over. Like, like we're just so distracted all the time when we try not to be distracted. When we try to be distracted, we're distracted from being distracted by all of the other things that are going on. It's nuts. The weird thing is that there's also gold in there. There's also stuff to harvest. Everybody's had the experience of shower thinking you know, you've got your absolutely very best idea in the shower and why it's because you've actually let the monkey mind play. It's this thought attaches to this thought, attaches to this thought. You don't even know where it came from or where it's going, but everyone's had the experience of having the very best idea they ever had in their lives (laughs) in the shower, right? Unfortunately, by the time you dry yourself off, (laughs) No idea what that idea actually was. So, how do you capture that amazing connective capability that's inside your skull and inside my skull and inside everybody's skull and not forget about it, not take advantage of that amazing connection that was made for one fraction of a second that could actually change your life or someone else's life or the way you do business or the way it's all there? You have to know how to do it.
0: I am guilty of that. That's where many, many ideas come for me. It's in the shower, and some people say it's because you're relaxed, and other people say it's because you're naked. I don't know which one of those. Maybe true. It's both. <laughs> <laughs> maybe both. But the ability to just say, "Hey Siri, remind me," because I don't, I don't ever want to lose those. I do think that there's, and also driving, and I think maybe driving because you're turning the conscious brain off, and you're just going into your cerebellum. Who. That part of your mind can take you directly to work, even if you got in the car not intending to go to work, but the pattern is so deep you let go and then stuff comes in. And if you pay attention and you see that, there is always something there. Go to gator brain.
1: (laughs) So gator brain is, there's a lot of ways of describing it. Some people call it reptilian brain. But the, the idea is that we basically have, and from an evolutionary point of view, it seems to be true, we have three different brains. We have this very, very primitive brain, which is the brain stem now. And that's pretty much all the brain a gator has, pretty much then we have something over that which is called the limbic system and when i say over that i mean literally it surrounds that that internal thing the limbic system is the brain that is the emotional brain that's where your amygdala is and what it does is it responds to things emotionally and then on top of that literally again on top of it you have your neocortex and that's your thinking brain and most of us think that we think with our thinking brain and in fact it's kind of the reverse. And there's a really interesting reason for that. From a purely physiological point of view, the signals from all of our senses, whether it's our eyes, our ears, our touch, doesn't matter what it is, come in first through that most primitive, the gator, that reptilian brain, come in through there. Fractions of a second later, those signals continue into the emotional brain. And then fractions of a second later, they come to our cognitive or, or rational brain. And so if you if you picture the following, you're driving down the street in a residential neighborhood and a ball comes bouncing out between two cars, and you slam on the brakes, and you miss fortunately the child who was following the, the ball. And you your hands are on the steering wheel and probably they're starting to shake because you almost hit somebody. What's happening there is that your emotional brain is making the first response. It's that that terror, that awful feeling of having almost done something really bad. And Mm -hmm. then you say, damn, kid, (laughs) right? (laughs) That's the cognitive brain. And every experience that we have in our lives goes first through that autonomic brain. That's that hit the brakes. You didn't think about hitting brakes. You hit the brakes second thing that happens was the emotional response that is good bad fear whatever that happens to be and then only the after that the third thing is the rational thing and unless we recognize that every response that we have to a situation goes through that path not because we're stupid not because we're you know not clever not because we wanted to but that's the way we're built you can get trapped in those lower conscious states So you can get trapped in the reactive conscious state, which is hitting the brakes without even knowing why. Or you can get trapped in the anger state. I'm using anger as one of the emotions without even knowing why. And we act so much from those two levels. And then what do we do with our rational brain? It's not rational. It rationalizes, right? It it justifies those other things. So just the awareness of it. Is really, really useful. And there's a practical tip that you can get. And that is wait. Just take that moment until this one kicks in and see if all those other responses, the reactive responses from the stem and from the limbic or sometimes called the mammalian brain are valid. And then act. How many times have all of us overreacted? You know, we call it overreacting because we haven't done that. Getting mad at somebody else or think, making a snap decision.
0: I think Ken Wilbur at one point wrote something about when you're laying down on the psychiatrist couch, you're laying next to a horse in a lizard. Yeah, you know, there's there's all these other things. Yeah, it's not it's not just that. And you know, it's it's just what happens. But I, I also just read recently that there are more channels, you're right, with the eyes, the ears, all the senses, there are more channels going up from the cerebellum through the limbic system to the neocortex then there are coming back down so that everything's getting channeled that way and the channels are deeper going with the the other direction and who knows how long it'll be that way when i was looking at your book i picked it up and then there was a, a chapter on reproductive thinking i got a view of who you are i was like there's what kind of book is this there's reproductive thinking and productive thinking I think of this as a couple things: resourcefulness and innovation. You know, and, and mm-hmm. it, it is sort of solving something. And I, I want you to share with people the difference in reproductive thinking and productive thinking. This is safer work, by the way. Even though Tim's talking about reproduction,
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You don't have to. You don't have to turn it down for your kids. <laughs> So most of us are pretty good at reproductive thinking. Most businesses are good at reproductive thinking. You can think of reproductive thinking as that incremental improvement. It's pretty close to Kaizen. So it's not big change. It's little change. It's those things that we learn over time that we add on to what we already know or the skills that we already have to try to make us better, to improve in some way, to read faster, to, to be more skillful at driving a car. We talked about cars earlier. To sell better. And it's a very, very useful kind of thinking. It's practical, it can take us certain distances, we can become better and better up to some limit at almost any task, at almost any challenge. What reproductive thinking doesn't do, though, is it doesn't break the paradigms. It doesn't convert. You know, The example I like to use is that you could reproductive think a buggy whip until God ends the universe, and you would never, ever, ever come up with a car (laughs) because the two are so radically different. And the only way you come up with a car is when you start thinking productively, when you start, in a sense, losing the connection to what you already know. And that in turn relates to a concept that I find in my own life and most of my clients really, really love. And that's called the third third. And there's a chapter called the third third. There's a lot of good research that tells us that when you're in a brainstorming session, a term that I don't like very much, but when you're in an ideation session, and it's a good one, you can kind of divide it into three parts. The first part is ideas everybody's already had already, you know, like there's nothing new going on. And anyone who's ever sat in a session like that knows that that happens. We come up with the stuff that's familiar, the stuff that's close to the surface, the stuff that we know. They're not particularly creative, and they're not particularly useful, and they certainly aren't paradigm-busting ideas. If you last long enough in a session, you get past that first third thinking, you start untethering yourself from reality, from what you know, from experience. So you still have a little bit of a tether, and you get to the second third. And in the second third, you start coming up with ideas that are kind of more interesting. They're breakaway ideas. And if you go even further and if you last long enough in this ideation session, whether it's with yourself in the shower or with a bunch of people, eventually you get to that third third. And those are the ideas that are probably politically incorrect, that are probably a little crazy, that probably feel dangerous and unsafe, but embedded in those ideas is, you know, Elon Musk saying, let's go to Mars. Right, right. (laughs) Right. That's where the the really, really amazing ideas come from. Unfortunately, we tend to to stop our ideation sessions long before that happens, because we find something that's kind of okay. And practical. Practical. It kind of solves the problem. And we say, we can now move on to the next problem. So we don't give ourselves that opportunity to get to the third third. And yet we all know what it is. We all know what it is because we all sit in the shower or or stand in the shower and have them, but we don't have them in the boardroom. (laughs) You know, we we don't have them when we're sitting around a a meeting table generally because we don't let ourselves and we don't have the tools.
0: Well, and I, I think there's tools and there's also the culture that good enough is good enough. We're practical, number one. And two, I've been in lots of meetings where there's ideation going on. And there's three people that feel like they all have to be the devil's advocate. And, and I always ask, okay, instead of being the devil's advocate, why don't you be the angel's advocate and figure out how we can do it instead of how we can't do it? Why not switch the role? If we had to do it, what would we do? But immediately people start shutting down ideas because it's not practical. But I mean, to your point, the automobile is not practical. Look at what it takes to make a car. You already have a horse. A horse is practical.
1: Horses you know, are good. They breathe by themselves. And, and, <laughs> yeah.
0: So there's a, and, uh, you know, it, it is exactly the fact that we can find something that's good enough and acceptable and practical that we miss the real innovations. Yeah.
1: yeah. And, you, you know, if, if people look at their own lives, you know, most people who have kids, your kid takes two steps, you know, the first two steps and falls down. Are you going to slam the kid for falling down? No, you're going to go crazy with with delight and joy and encouragement because the kid took two steps right? yeah. and then fell down. Why wouldn't you do the same with the idea? Say, oh, my God, what an amazing idea that is. Let's really celebrate that. We may find out later that it wasn't you know what we thought it was. That's OK. It's not this is not a huge waste of time. <laughs> let's let's celebrate it first and then if we if we want to say well you know what if you took that third step you know without having (laughs) your leg flinging out to the side you might get the third step you know son or daughter so it's first celebrating and then analyzing
0: talk about just for a minute i want to talk about you did third third i want to talk about just staying in the question what is it that, I know what you're saying in this chapter, but what is it about humans ideating that we ask the question, we answer the question, and we don't stay in the question long enough? Is it, is it our, I mean, we're problem-solving creatures for sure, but, yeah. I, but, t- but what's the rush to answer the question, and, and what do you mean by staying in the question, I, if you wouldn't mind sharing that for
1: people? Yeah. So, what happens is that we're really uncomfortable. With not knowing. We're uncomfortable with no, not nailing down things. I mean, again, let's look at our you know forget business for for time being. But you know, let's look at life around us. What is it? What is it the first thing that we ask when things go wrong? We try to attribute cause, right? And even if we're wrong, it's comforting to us to attribute a reason. And so we search for and the first reason that kind of even vaguely fits in with whatever construct we're working with, we sometimes grab. And in a sense, it puts us out of our misery, It puts us out of that that place of vagueness, that place of ambiguity, that place of uncertainness, a relationship. Why did you leave me? Why did you leave me? It's not, oh, I'm sad you left me. It's why did you leave? <laughs> That's I a solvable to, problem. I need to know the answer. Yeah. So, it's, it's such a powerful driver for us that we tend to, to land on an answer and then we'll stick with it. Well, that's and you. Boy, you, oh boy, you know, it won't take, it's really hard to dislodge us from once we've got, you know, what we think is the answer.
0: La- later on in the book, though, you describe it this way you perceive a problem, you pick the solution, and then you do something.
1: Bing, bang, bang. And,
0: and it's just as fast as that, like, okay, good, now it's solved. I can do something. And you're recommending in, in the book with tools, hang in there on the problem. Hang in there on the
1: question. Don't leave it so fast. Don't what, else might, what else might be an answer? One of my favorite words is else. You know, like what else could be the cause? What else could be the solution? And here's the thing. It's so low risk. We think it's a high risk thing to, to think, you know, you know, odd and crazy ways. It's nothing. It's a matter of, a, you know, a few moments of your time. So it's not as though you're committing to anything. It's not as though you're going to go out and, you know, Build a building on the basis of a theory. It's just giving yourself the time and again, the tools that'll stimulate these things, these answers to look at the second right answer and the third right answer and the fourth right answer. And anyone who looks at any problem will, if they think about it, will know there's not just one right answer to a problem. The absolute, the absolute way to not be creative is to strive for certainty. Because there's no room. After certainty, there's no room. There's only one answer.
0: This is my whole view of selling. It's choices. I mean, if there was just one way to win a deal, everybody would do it. There's lots of ways. There's complex, dynamic human interactions and different scenarios going on inside the customer's mind, inside their business, inside the economy. How could there be one answer? It Uh, would be impossible. And uh, it's impossible to be 100% wrong. A lot of ways will get you there in the right circumstances. You're just not that good.
1: That's right. You know, I I like to say there are no wrong (laughs) notes. Like there's no wrong note at all. You just have to find the right note for the right place and then, you know, and and, and work with that note until it becomes something meaningful and useful to you.
0: What would you tell people? And I want people to go get the book on its 10th anniversary. I want you to just share if you could give people very, very practical, general advice. I call this in my first book resourcefulness, which is you need to spend time thinking about what choices you have available to you. And I've made recommendations like sitting down with a legal pad and just trying to fill three pages with ideas. Don't commit to anything except for generation sit with the question, sit with the challenge and keep coming up with ideas and then get with a group of people who are willing to do that with you and who aren't going to jump right to the end and and impose an answer on the group, but that will just literally explore in that chapter of the book. I start with the story. I found a picture on the internet of a wheel in a boot that was preventing the car from being taken and the car's gone, you know, and to me, it's just the ultimate example of human resourcefulness that the person who couldn't figure out how to pay the tickets that they had could figure out how to remove the car from the wheel.
1: Oh, my God. That's you know? a wonderful story. I and love So, you that. look
0: at it and you think the boot is to prevent that car from being moved. But somebody said, oh, you're assuming that I need this wheel, you know, and so now <laughs> I can get another wheel. And they, they find a way to take the car off of the wheel. So, how, how does this work? And this is just what human beings are capable of. If we think, but this person found it easier, like mechanically, they're really smart. They figured out how to get the car off. Maybe they struggle with figuring out how to pay their bills, which is a different challenge for them. But what's the practical advice that you think people are going to get out of Think Better? And how do you intend them to use it? So share what you can here.
1: So, you know, Anthony, you've already given it. And that is, it's that pad of legal paper, in a sense. One of the most powerful things that you can do is make lists just make lists of ideas. So write down your issue, write down your question. And then, well, this is a possible answer. This is a possible. Don't judge them. Don't do any, just focus on generating ideas. Then go back and look at those, that list and say, oh my gosh, this one sounds interesting, or this one scares me, or this one raises my energy level. And look at those and say, well, why? But if we don't give ourselves a chance to do that, because we You know, there's a term some some people use called satisficing. If we satisfice on our first answer or the second answer, we'll never get there because we'll start, you know, scurrying away at solving the problem. And here's the weird thing: it's not only the answers that you want to write down. You actually, I said, start with a question. What I would say is, first thing to do is write down that first question you have, and then write down another question that might be a better question, that might be a more a deeper question. So often. You know, my business, as you know, is prim- my primary business is not selling. My business is trying to help people you know, work more effectively. I go around the country and I, I see thousands of people, literally thousands of people working on solutions to the wrong questions right. because, you know, we have to go back a whole step here. They literally have asked themselves the wrong questions and they spin their wheels and they ask themselves to solve questions. And if you solve the wrong question, nothing changes. You haven't done it. So just as you would write lists of answers, but before you start, write lists of questions. Is this really the right question? If I if I solve this, am I actually solving the problem? If I do this, am I actually going to change things the way I want to change? And write down that list. Maybe it's 10. Maybe it's 20. Maybe it's 100. Maybe it's three pages of, of them, as you just said. And then go back and say, well, which question is the one I really need to answer? Great answer, wrong question syndrome. It's huge. Everywhere.
0: I have a friend who uh, built a big business, and the company was purchased by another company. And one of the first things that the acquiring company said to them when they bought the company is, It's interesting that you did this. You started this kind of a business inside the business. But the first question we would ask is, Why are you doing that at all? It shut the room down. You know, like, why did you decide that this was the right thing to do? And the fact that you could generate revenue this way. You're actually distorting the business and you're not doing what the first principle of the business is to begin with. And it's a stunning question. Why did you decide to even do that? And that is, what is the question? And in your framework, you've got, what is success? And if success is we can capture this revenue because we can capture it. Yeah, but is it the right revenue? Is it the right place to deploy the resources? Is it the long-term strategic interest of the company to do this thing? And those are the brave questions, right? Those those are the ones that you have to sit with because you're really challenging what somebody's going to do and what the right answer looks like before you decide to what you would call forge the solution and then align the resources. They did the aligning the resources
1: before they before did they, before they right. did it's, that. So it's, it's and, backwards planning, right? It's, exactly.
0: It's backwards, okay. and I think that the framework that you have is like all great frameworks, relatively simple, okay. but the sequence matters a great deal. And if you get the sequence wrong, you're going to end up not doing the work
1: that you're capable of. Well, you Unproductive may just re- reinforce where you already are. That's exactly right. You know, and you asked for some tips and tools, Anthony. And so he, here's a super simple one. And it's more demonstrative than anything else, but it's an exercise that I do with groups. And it's based on a board game that I saw years ago that people may remember. I think the board game was called Taboo. So I call the, the tool taboo, and here's how it works. You get a bunch of people together, and, and this is just an example. You can do it with any subject. Then you want them to, to introduce themselves to one another, yeah? like typical thing that everybody does in every seminar that was ever created, right? And you ask them to write down on a piece of paper, what are the five things that you almost always say about yourself when you introduce yourself to somebody new in a business context, in a social context, whatever? So they write down these things and some of them scratch their heads and I said, I have to cue them. I have to say like, like your name, (laughs) like like where you are from, what you do for a living. And then I say, okay, now I want you to find somebody that you don't know. Take that piece of paper, crumple it up and you can't use any of those answers. You've got to introduce yourself saying something else. And you see a kind of a panic go through the room, not a huge panic, but a little panic, you know, giggling and tittering and, oh, what you're, you know, how am I going to do this? But then what happens after two minutes, and you, you, know, you sort of interrupt them and you stop them and you say, okay, so what happened for you? Here's the kind of answers you get. You get answers that sound like, you know, I actually discovered something that was interesting about the other person, or I said something interesting about me that I don't normally say. or. I was really kind of stymied. And so the first thing I did was ask the other person a question before saying who I was. And all of those things are actually very productive things to do. And at the end, everyone in the the room, almost everyone will say, that was a really interesting experience. I should do that more often. (laughs) I should throw away what I know and go with the other stuff that I know, but I never surface. So imagine now doing this. For, you know, what are your company's values? Write down the company's values. Crumple up that piece of paper now talk about the company's values and don't mention any of those things. Are you going to discover more about the company's values? Of course you are. Because the one set was written by a PR person and the other set is articulated by people who actually live those values. So this is just one example of a way you can dig deeper, get further, understand more, and ultimately be more productive.
0: I love the idea of taboo just generally. What are we afraid to talk about? What yeah. makes us vulnerable? That's where the real action lives right there.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, I appreciate you coming on. Where do you want me to send people to find out more about you?
1: So a couple of websites. There's a, an easy one, which is Tim Herson. That's my name, timherson.com, dot ncom That actually can lead you to all the other ones. So it's probably the easiest one. I do also run some camps that I call Mind You, or rather Mind Camp. And uh, they are uh, retreats that are for people who are interested in exploring how well they think and how they can think better. We've got one in Canada, we've got one in Chile, and we've got one in the Southwest of the United States. And they're you know, essentially long weekends, one a year in each of those places. And they're cool places to go. And uh, you can learn more about those at Mind Camp, that's dot That sounds like a cool way to spend a weekend. It's uh, a lot of fun and people come back over and over. So it's uh, something that they, they obviously get something out of. Thank you so much for coming on. Anthony, thank you very much. And I'd love to talk to you more about any bunch of subjects, including your books, which I think are really so, so useful and so terrific. And once again, I know I can't remember whether we said this before we started recording or not. You are an astonishing producer. I can't believe how (laughs) seriously how you were able to come out with the books in such short order and how and how good they are and how. How useful they are! You know, we're coming back to that word "useful." So, all kudos to you, man.
0: Well, all. thank you. You do great work too, and we're definitely going to do this again. I'd like that. That was my friend Tim Herson, and you're going to find him at thinkxic.com. You'll find that in the show notes, and do pick up Think Better on Amazon.com now. I'm Anthony Arena. You can find me at thesalesblog.com, where I write and publish daily. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash anarena where I post most days. When you go to either one of those, do sign up for my Sunday newsletter, my best work every week in your inbox Sunday morning so that you can hit the ground running on Monday. If you like this show, or if you don't like this show, go out and leave me a rating, leave me a review on iTunes and help me share this with other people. And until then, I'll see you next time in the arena.